One, my name's Michelle, and I'll be uh, reading the second Bible reading for us, which will be taken from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 until 7. In your pew Bibles, you can find that on page 1189, or of course on the screen projected behind me. Romans 13, starting from verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except, except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to be here. Uh, as John said, I was here Friday night and yesterday as well giving some talks, so a number of you uh, recognise the faces. Uh, and can I say what a privilege it is to bring you God's word this morning. It's great to be at such a uh, great fellowship of saints where the word of God is taken seriously and where you are so welcoming. Uh, my wife and I have felt particularly welcomed over the, since we've been here with you. Uh, and my wife Sarah just uh, wanted me to say that she'd love to have been here with you, but she has to fly back to reality uh, to work Monday morning. Now, John asked me to preach a topic related to what I covered uh, yesterday, so I've chosen this uh, topic of religious freedom. Now, if you were there over the last day or so, some of this material you'll know is a little bit familiar. Uh, and I understand you've also done Romans 13. Um, so hang in there while I lay some foundations from Romans 13 and then we'll take a good look at religious freedom. Why don't we pray now together as I begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray that we will take seriously what we hear this morning, may it change and transform us so that we would live as the people you would want us to live as. In Jesus' name, Amen. So the year is 1953. It's the height of communist oppression in Eastern Europe. People live in constant fear, fear of the police, fear of that knock on the door at midnight, fear of being taken away and never heard from again. My dad was seven at the time, living with his family in Hungary, in a town a couple of hundred kilometres to the southwest of Budapest. It's late at night and the cricket, crickets are chirping outside, the animals are asleep and everything is quiet. My grandparents are about to head to bed. Then all of a sudden, the dogs in the backyard start barking and the back door flies open. A man is standing there, one of their neighbours. He's a local Communist Party official. Mishka, he says. My grandfather's name was Mishka. Mishka, if anyone asks, I wasn't here. 
I've just come back from the local Communist Party meeting and they decided to make an example of you tomorrow. They're going to put you on a show trial and condemn you. I'm telling you this so that you can escape. The man then leaves out the back door as suddenly as he came. You can imagine how my grandparents are feeling at this point. My grandfather has a quick think. He tells my grandmother to head down to the train station and ask the local station master, who they were friends with, to delay the departure of the midnight train to Budapest. Grandfather quickly gets together some belongings and he rushes off to the train where he hides out with some friends in Bud Budapest and doesn't come home for the next six months. That was life under communism, the biggest killer of the 20th century. Now, I think it's hard for us to imagine what life would have been like under such a government, although perhaps now in our darker moments we're wondering what it would be like. But still, we're blessed here in Australia. We don't live under an oppressive government. But whether we live under a dictatorship like my grandparents did or a democracy like we do, the question always comes up. How should Christians relate to government? How should Christians behave towards governments, whether communist or constitutional monarchy? Well, what Michelle read to us, Romans 13, 1-7, gives us the answer. A surprising answer, one we might not have expected, but one we need to listen to if we're to live faithfully here as Christians in this country, and particularly if we're to live faithfully at a time when we're chal facing challenges to religious freedom, to our freedom to live as Christians without persecution. So here's what we'll do. In the first half of this talk, we'll take a brief look at Romans 13, 1-7, and in the back half, we'll see how this passage will help us understand the topic of religious freedom. So let's begin. Now this nation, as you know, began as a prison colony. Many Aussies are descended from convicts. Anyone here descended from convicts, just out of interest? Oh, we have one gentleman at the back. Uh, but it means as a culture, as a culture, we're kind of suspicious of authority, aren't we? We're kind of suspicious of government. I mean, we don't like anyone telling us what to do, especially not the government. And so if you look down at verse 1, Verse 1 kind of hits us between the eyes. Romans 13, verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Now that word submit, that's a swear word for many Aussies, isn't it? We don't like submitting, obeying, listening to those in authority. I mean, what do we Aussies like to do, especially to our politicians? We like to pay them out. Now I'm not sure if you heard, but supposedly Scott Morrison had his own domain, his own website, and that domain expired a week ago or so. And somebody else bought that domain, scottmorrison.com, and they put up some vile uh, video paying him out. A lot of people thought that was hilarious, but that is typical Aussie, I think. I mean, we like to bend the rules, do what suits us, cheat on our tax, go past that speed limit, download those pirated movies, anything but submit. And yet... God wants us to submit. He commands us to submit. He commands us to obey the government. Whether it's your local government, the state government, federal government, whether you live under Prime Minister ScoMo or President Donald Trump, where to submit to the government. We need to obey their laws. Now at this point you might be thinking, well, Arcos, what if the government makes unjust laws? Are Christians meant to obey those laws as well? 
We'll hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. But next, Paul gives us the reason why we're to submit to the government. And it's there in the second half of verse 1, if you look down. Romans 13, second half of verse 1, For there is no authority, no government, except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Why is Scott Morrison our Prime Minister? Well, we voted him. Well, actually, we didn't vote for him, but the Parliament voted for him. That's true, but ultimately it's because God has put him there. Why is Donald Trump the President of America? Well, the voters for, voted for him, yes. But ultimately, God has raised up Donald Trump to be the President. There's no authority except that which God has established. And if God's put the authorities here, whether Daniel Andrews or Scott Morrison, Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump, if God has put the authorities here, then guess what? Have a look down at verse 2. Verse 2, Consequently, he who rebels against the authorities, rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Rebelling against the government is rebelling against God. And God will judge that rebellion on the last day when Jesus returns. You don't have to like Scott Morrison, but if you live in Australia, you need to submit to his government. Okay, so back to the obvious question. Does submission to government mean obeying every law that the government makes? What if the government's tyrannical, like the communist dictatorship my parents and grandparents were in, and where I spent the first four years of my life? Does God expect us to obey everything a government tells us to do? Well, a couple of things to say. In this passage, firstly, Paul's not addressing every possible situation Christians can find themselves in. He's writing to a particular church at a particular time, facing particular issues. Uh, the Roman Christians at the time were living under Emperor Nero, uh, a Nero that hadn't yet gone off the rails. So had Paul been writing, say, to Christians living in Hitler's Germany, he might have had a few other things to say as well. A second, notice that governments themselves are under authority. They're under God's authority, which means that even though we've got to submit to our government, we must ultimately submit to God. God's the ultimate boss. We've got to obey God no matter what, which means that if Scott Morrison ever commands us to do the wrong thing, We've got to say, sorry, God's the ultimate boss. We've got to obey him first. And third, there are many examples in Scripture of godly men and women who submitted to government, but then when they were commanded to do evil, they disobeyed. Whether it's Daniel and his buddies refusing to worship false gods back in Babylon, or the apostles Peter and John in Acts chapter 5 declaring, we must obey God rather than men after being commanded to shut up about Jesus. In other words, submission to government was always conditional. We don't submit to laws, we don't submit to commands that are sinful. If that ever happens, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Feel free to chat to me afterwards if you've still got questions. Well, next... We see God's job description for governments, what God wants governments to do, which is law and order. They're here to protect us from evil. Have a look down at verse 4, Romans 13, verse 4. For he, that is government, is God's servant to do you good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now imagine for a second living in a country where there is no law and order. Think Somalia, parts of Afghanistan, parts of Mexico, where people can just get away with breaking in and stealing your car, your house, your family, where they could hurt you badly. How would you feel living in a country like that? It'd be pretty awful, wouldn't it? It'd be the law of the jungle. God knows how bad that would be. Which is why he set up governments. Governments are here to punish evil, to keep law and order, because the alternative is utter chaos. So yes, it was bad to grow up for my parents to grow up in communist Hungary, but it was better, much better, than if we had lived in a failed state like Somalia, where there's no effective government and it's just lawlessness. And so what does this mean for us? Well, it's another reason to submit to government because we know that God has put, up, put them here for our good. Uh, in verse 6, this submission includes paying taxes. I know that's a painful one for us Aussies. It includes honouring those in authority, even governments we might not agree with, even though we're a nation of ex-convicts. Okay, so we've seen that government is put here by God to maintain law and order. And God wants us to submit to governments, although if there's unjust laws, we're not to submit to those. Well, what does this mean for religious freedom? That's what we'll check out now. And there's four things we'll go through. Uh, first, we just saw in Romans 13 that God puts governments in place. Now, if you're a first century Jew reading Romans 13, you would have noticed something was missing in the role of a government. Something was missing that uh, was there previously uh, for the kings of Israel. And it's this. Government's not here to force people to worship God. God doesn't want Scott Morrison to force people to worship Jesus. Or in other words, God has put government in the law and order business, but not in the religion business. To put it practically, according to God's design, government must not force people to practice a particular religion or pretend, uh, prevent them from practicing Except, and there's always an exception, except where law and order are affected. So if Donald Trump said to his fellow Americans, you've got to bow the knee to Jesus, else I'm going to lock you up, that would be wrong. Because God doesn't want government in the religion business. I mean, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus, Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 and elsewhere, that it's only by persuasion that we're to bring people to Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.2 reads, But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We don't want government to force people to become Christian. And sadly, you might be thinking, well, haven't Christians done that in the past? Haven't Christians taken over government and forced their government to make others Christian? And sadly, throughout church history, it's happened. And Christians were doing the wrong thing at that time. That idea is false to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
However, if your next door neighbor wanted to start worshipping the ancient Canaanite god Molech, which involves sacrificing his children, well, at that point, it would be right for the government to ban that religion. And so we can now define what we mean by religious freedom. Religious freedom, common term, but here's a very simple definition. Religious freedom means keeping the government out of the religion business. Religious freedom means keeping the government out of the religion business. Uh, defending religious freedom simply means limiting the power of government to its God-ordained role. And the key role, as we saw, is upholding public order and justice. Or to put it in terms used by the founding fathers of the USA, it's keeping that separation of church and state. The state must not punish people for practising or not practising any particular religion. Now, the state might choose to support religious professionals such as chaplains or religious activities such as SRI in public schools. But these people, these activities, they're non-coercive. They don't force kids or people to become religious. But at this point, it gets, also gets a little tricky. And where many people, I think even Christians, can get a little confused. And so this is where we need to think carefully. As we saw a moment ago, government must not punish people for practising or not practising a particular religion unless public law and order are somehow affected. Keep law and order, uphold the public good and don't tell people what religion to practise. That's government's role. But here's the thing. All our laws and all our policies are driven by views of right and wrong about what justice looks like. And our views of justice are driven by our, wait for it, our beliefs. Our beliefs about right and wrong, about the common good, about what life is about, about what humanity is for. Those beliefs drive our views of laws and public policy and justice. Whether you're a citizen who votes or an MP who makes laws, your beliefs drive your political views. Which makes politics a battleground of beliefs. A battleground of different gods, as it were. That's the way, just the way it is. We're human. We're driven by our beliefs. And so religion free, religious freedom means giving other people space to put their belief-driven views into the public square. Whether it's their Islamic views or secular Marxist views or Catholic views. Religious freedom means we give space for people to express themselves and influence politics according to their beliefs. So government must not tell people what religion to practice. In that sense, it's to stay out of the, government, out of the religion business. But laws and public policy and government are inescapably driven by our underlying beliefs. Which... As I mentioned yesterday, is why we want Christians to put their views forward into the public square. So that our laws and public policy are shaped by God's view of right and wrong. Okay. So how might the government enter the religion business? Well, in the country I was born in, in a communist country, it was actually to close churches and punish those who would have found to be Christian. But what about here in the West? Has government entered the religion business? Well, up until very recently, Western governments stayed right out of the religion business. But if you've been following the news, they've started creeping in of late. And I think 
It's ever really since the push for same-sex marriage a few years ago that religious freedom has increasingly come under pressure. Where religious freedom is now seen to be clashing with sexual freedom. Uh, let me give you possibly the most notorious example that I can think, think of. Uh, Archbishop Julian Porteous is the Catholic Archbishop of Hobart. Uh, in 2015, the Catholic bishops of Australia decided to write a little booklet on marriage, which they called Don't Mess With Marriage. Now, if you've read it, it's a very calm, peaceful, measured piece of writing. It's hardly controversial stuff. It's very carefully drafted to express respect for all. In fact, it just expresses the traditional Catholic view of marriage. And yet, Rodney Croom, who was National Director of Australian Marriage Equality at the time, he came out and said, if you've seen this booklet, we want you to complain about it. Now, this book was distributed to Catholic parishes and schools in Tasmania. And after Croom's urging, Martin Delaney, an LGBTI activist and Greens candidate in Tasmania, lodged a complaint with the Tasmanian Human Rights Commissioner. And here's where it gets scary. The Tasmanian Human Rights Commissioner supported the complaint, saying that it looked like hate speech, and called upon the church to answer for its offensive teaching on marriage. But the Catholic Church had merely put that booklet out to Catholic schools, reaffirming traditional marriage, which at the time was still the law of the land. Now, the Catholic Church responded by calling in their lawyers and the case went from November 2015 to May 2016 when it was quietly dropped in the lead-up to the federal election because the media was starting to take more of an interest in it. When churches are hauled before government human rights commissioners for merely reaffirming their traditional teachings, you know that there's starting to be pressure on religious freedom. And now that same-sex marriage is the law of the land, do you think such pressure will get lighter? No, chances are it will only increase. Just like it has in other countries where same-sex marriage has come in. And very recently, over the last fortnight or so, we've already seen parts of the media attack the whole idea of religious freedom, saying that it just gives Christian organisations a licence to discriminate. Um, I saw this classic Sydney Morning Herald story about the Anglican Church, I think two, three days ago. And here's the headline. Sydney Anglicans set to ban gay weddings and pro-LGBTI advocacy on church property. So all of a sudden it's controversial for a church to ban causes and events on its own private church property that it doesn't agree with. That's now headline-making news. Uh, if John was to put on your church's website that we don't host same-sex weddings at this church, the media might well pick that up and say, Surrey Hills Presbyterian Church bans same-sex weddings. Of course, that plays into the whole narrative that we saw over the last day or so of oppressive religious institutions oppressing minorities, gay minorities. Now, here's the thing that many secular commentators miss. When government enters the religion business and starts punishing people for practicing their religion, it's not just religious people that suffer. Everybody suffers. Why? Because if a government steps into the religion business, 
It's not long before it starts punishing people for holding the wrong political views or the wrong social views. Uh, my grandfather, who I mentioned earlier, wasn't targeted by the communist regime because he was religious, but because he was a small business owner. And others were sent to jail because of their social and political views. Non-Christians suffered as well. In fact, non-Christians, I'd say, suffered more because there were more non-Christians than Christians. When government starts entering the religious business, it gets bad for everyone. So what should Christians do about this? How do we respond to this increasing pressure on religious freedom? Uh, well, first of all, we pray. Uh, Christians are called to pray that government won't persecute so that we might live peaceful and godly lives. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the following to his uh, friend Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, Paul writes, I urge them, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, the Apostle Paul knew a thing or two about persecution. If you read the rest of the New Testament, and yet his desire, and more importantly God's desire, is that Christians might be able to live peaceful and quiet lives. Of course, God won't always answer that prayer in the affirmative, but it's a good prayer, and so it's a good desire. So, let's pray. Let's pray that governments might stay out of the religion business so that we might live peaceful and godly lives. But what about politics? Can we use legal and political means to uphold religious freedom? Should we dirty our hands in politics as Christians? Well, if we look to the example of the Apostle Paul, I think the answer is yes. Uh, Christians are free to use legal and political means to limit persecution because it's actually what the Apostle Paul did on occasion. Now, unless we think the Apostle Paul got it wrong, we can look to his example of, as a way of engaging government. Uh, so in the book of Acts, in a variety of places, such as Acts chapter 16, verse 37 to 39, the Apostle Paul demanded his rights as a Roman citizen be respected by the civil authorities. He actually said, I've got rights as a Roman citizen and you, the government, should respect them. In Acts chapter 23, uh, Paul requested the protection of the Roman army when facing persecution. The same apostle who wrote that being persecuted was central to following the crucified Messiah in Romans 8 was also at times willing to use legal and political means to reduce that persecution. Uh, a theologian, John Stott, this is the way he put it. He said, Some cases of need cannot be relieved at all without political action. Uh, the harsh treatment of slaves could have been made easier, but not slavery itself. It had to be abolished. So if we truly love our neighbours and want to serve them, our service may oblige us to take or solicit political action on their behalf. Now that will look different for different people. Uh, I have friends involved in lobbying politicians. Uh, I have a friend leading a group of lawyers that defends religious freedom in the court system. Uh, many people contribute to Christian organisations that stand up for religious freedom. 
But each one of us can pray for our government that we might live peaceful and godly lives. And each one of us is given a vote. An amazing God-given responsibility that we can use to love our neighbour but by helping protect against government getting into the religion business. All right. Now, I've had thoughtful Christians tell me we shouldn't worry about religious freedom. Christians can do just fine without it, they say. And you know what? That's partly true. Jesus is risen. He is Lord. And he gives us his spirit to help us endure and live godly lives, whether under communism or democracy. We don't need to despair, even if government gets itself into the religion business. But religious freedom isn't just about protecting Christians. It's also about protecting non-Christians. Your Muslim neighbour, your gay atheist colleague, your Mormon grandmother, who all become vulnerable once government steps into the religion business. And so what are we going to do? Are we going to pray? Are we going to take political responsibility as we have opportunity? The responsibility that God has given us. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've put us in a time and place where we do enjoy so many freedoms. Heavenly Father, for the sake of our neighbour, for the sake of future generations, we pray that if it is your will, you might uphold religious freedom for a long time yet here in this great country of ours. We pray that you would give each one of us wisdom to know how to respond uh, as we see encroachment on religious freedom. But most of all, help us to keep looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who one day will take us home to be with himself forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.